which then brings me to my next point, ownership and autonomy. We have to remember, we will not be on the field or court with our athletes. They're going to be all by themselves and they have to know that the solutions and the strength resides in them, not within us. We don't have all the answers. We want to empower them to have the answers. What is up, everyone, and welcome to the Athlete Blueprint Podcast. So for today's episode, we're actually going to be doing something a little bit different. Solo episode, you get to hear me. So for better or for worse, you're going to hear my voice in your ears for the next uh, several minutes. So one of the things I wanted to do with this podcast is to introduce various types of content. So previously up to this point, we have been focusing on long format interviews, which personally I love. Those long format interviews kind of lead to winding, emerging discussions between my guests and I, and I feel like we really uncover some interesting topics and go down some rabbit holes that need to be explored. With that being said, I wanted to introduce something a little bit different. So we're going to be taking a deep dive into particular topics that I feel like need to be explored more, topics that interest me and I feel like might be interesting to you, the audience. Also, the, these topics are going to be presented in a little bit shorter format. So you're not going to be hearing you know, a timeline of 40 to 60 minutes, going to be a little bit shorter. So that being said, for today, the first concept I wanted to introduce is going to be my ACL journey and some ways that we might explore some ecological concepts in return to play programs. So if you were able to listen to my last episode with Steph Allen, you'll know that we discussed some of these potential inadequacies that currently exist in our return to play programs. I believe one of the quotes she used is that in the current American insurance-based model, we prepare our athletes from ACL surgery to recovery to basically do linear sprinting and lift weights. Well, we know that sports and sport movement is much more in-depth and much more complicated than that. So that's the area I want to explore with you here today. So we are going to start off First off, with my personal ACL journey. So I tore my ACL at this point. See, I'm going to make myself sound a little bit old. I think at this point, it was probably 14 years ago, roughly, is when I tore it and then had surgery. So I, in high school, well, growing up, actually, I played every sport you can imagine, from basketball, baseball, soccer, football, anything. In high school, I focused more on uh, basketball and baseball. So the end of my senior year in a rec league basketball game, I tore my ACL. It was devastating for me. As you can imagine, as a 17-year-old, might have been 18 at the time, basketball player, athlete, sports plays a huge role in your life. And it certainly did for me. It defined who I was as a person. So going through that ACL recovery process, for anybody that's experienced that, is quite demanding, not just physically, but also mentally. So early on, right, you're trying to achieve full range of motion, which let's be honest, it sucks. It blows. You're basically getting to full extension when your knee doesn't necessarily want to do that. So that part sucks. But the part that, you know, really isn't understood or emphasized enough is a psychological aspect. Going from being part of your sport, part of your teammates, part of a locker room, having your identity shipped away from you for nine months to a year is really, really tough. And I experienced that, experienced that, excuse me, in full force. 
I'll be honest, I was probably a little bit depressed. I didn't know what my next move was for college. I didn't have D1 scholarships, you know, schools knocking on my, my window, knocking on my door, waiting to give me money. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do for the next four years of my life. So in addition to the psycho- psychological aspect of the ACL, the area of ACL recovery or rehab that I feel like is largely misunderstood is getting from being cleared in clinic to playing effectively and safely in your sport. And that, to me, is where we miss the boat largely as a profession, whether in physical therapy, athletic training, sports performance, strength and conditioning, whatever it is, this is where we typically miss the boat. And I experienced that firsthand. I've actually had multiple knee surgeries, four, I believe, um, who's counting at this point. But I remember one specific time when I was recovering from a meniscus repair and it was in a basketball game. I got in late in the game and I was trying to do a spin move on my defender and I collapsed. Now, from a physical standpoint, I had cleared every metric that you can possibly clear, hop test, single leg squat test, anything that you can think of. But clearly there was a gap between what I was perceiving and what I was actually executing. The problem in front of me was too complex for my movement system. I did not appropriately solve it. Certainly falling to the ground is not solving that, that problem effectively. Another instance is me currently in my current form of life. The way we work for our facility is we'll often have to jump in with our athletes to do agility activities, different games, different situations that we put our athletes in. Sometimes we have to be that representation of another athlete for them. And I'll still do that to this day. But I even notice at this point, certain times I won't even cut or put pressure on my left, my left leg. That was the, the ACL side. So it's almost like that side of me, that uh, the affordance of planning hard on my left and going to my right it, it is diminished. And that's, you know, been 15 years ago. So even up to this point, there are still gaps in my movement system. And speaking of those gaps, one of the ways that these gaps are illuminated or exemplified, if you will, are in some of the current literature on the stats of ACL retears. So depending on where you read it, the stats can range anywhere from 6 to to 31%, depending on a number of factors, gender, graph type. And I can link in the show notes to a, a study that, that I've referenced before in a presentation so you guys can see that. But the alarming thing about this particular study is that the majority of these retairs are within 20 or less athlete exposures. The study considers an exposure, any type of sports-specific activity, whether it be a practice, a game, a scrimmage, anything like that. So clearly, this shows that there is something going on and that there must be some underlying reasons as to why that these athletes are retearing their ACL rates, not just at such high uh, of a rate, but so close to returning back onto the sport that they love. So then the question becomes, how can we help reduce some of these retail rates? And in my opinion, one of the best ways that we can do that and one of the key missing elements in return to play programs is going to be introducing some ecological concepts into our actual return to play programs. So when it comes to introducing some of these ecological concepts into our return to play programs, Understanding the theory behind it is very key. And there are some great resources out there. Dr. Rob Gray over at Perception and Action Podcast and the guys over at Emergence to me are two of the very, very best that you can find. So I'll go ahead and put some resources um, from in the show notes on, on their educational 
platforms. So I do think it's worth going over to them to, to getting some of the hard research and practical uh, theories that they can provide. That being said, I'm going to go ahead and explain it in a way that I think is relatable for, for physical therapy. So when we're talking about ecological dynamics and introducing some of these concepts into return to play, we need to understand a basic concept of ecological dynamics, and that is perception and action. So to me, perception and action is basically saying that an individual, in our case, an athlete, is going to organize their movements based upon what they experience in their environment. So their environment doesn't just mean, you know, another person. It also means, you know, the field conditions. It could be themselves as well. So within that, that whole paradigm, we have three different constraints that are going to affect their movements. So we have the task constraints. So very simply, the task constraints is going to be what the athlete is expected to do. So what is the object? If we take the sport of, let's just say soccer, for example, it might be, what is the situation in front of me? Is my objective to try to get to the front of the net and score a goal, or is it to get back on defense? So those could be positional, those could be tactical in nature. Um, another one is going to be the individual. And this one's something that is very important because we have to understand that as an athlete gets becomes injured, they are a different version of themselves. I think it's naive to experience, or sorry, to expect that every athlete is going to just be their old self. They might be an improved version, right? There's a lot of ways that you can improve, but they are a different version of themselves. And as each athlete experiences the world differently, each time they go out there, uh, they're going to have a different set of constraints. So for example, we mentioned my knee earlier. If I know that I don't feel confident and, and feel stable in my left knee, well, that is going to then constrain my movement accordingly. I'm going to have a different movement outcome than someone who feels 100% confident on both knees. The other thing that we talk about with individual constraints is going to be the physical physical capacity. So how much speed do I have? How much power do I have? Um, there's also the anthropometric features, right? Going to be how tall I am. Uh, you know, it's going to be my stride length, things like that. A 5'9 athlete is not going to move the way a 6'2", 6'3 athlete will. And then the other one is going to be environmental constraints. So that is going to be what the environment provides for me. So think about the anxiety that occurs with a packed stadium or a packed arena. Think about the way the field conditions will affect how I move. So if it is a slick, slippery field, maybe after a um, downpour of rain, I am not going to have the same base of support as I would if it was a really dry field. We also have temperature, lighting. There are a number of factors that can affect environmental constraints. So let's take another practical example. Let's take a sport that is maybe a little less obvious, a court sport. Let's just say volleyball. Let's take the action of jumping and landing. So typically when we address jumping and landing in a physical therapy setting or in a strength conditioning setting, we focus on a perfect two foot evenly weight distributed landing right off of a predetermined height for a set number of reps. And that's great, right? That has a place. I'm not saying it doesn't. But the reality is that landing that you see, you know, off of a box in a sterile controlled setting is not going to look anything like the landing you'll see after a outside hitter, after an outside hitter goes up to hit a ball, right? There's going to be a net, there's going to be an overhead arm action, and it's very unlikely 
that they're going to be landing with a 50-50 weight distribution. In addition to that, they may be landing on traffic, or sorry, in traffic around other people that are near them. Not to mention the fact that it's going to be in a, in a game or a practice setting where there may be some adrenaline, there may be some fear and anxiety there as well. So when we look at the difference between those two tasks, how can we then inject some relevant information so that we can bridge the gap between something that is very controlled in a setting that is very predictable to the most unpredictable setting possible in the actual sport? So we, before we move on to that, I do want to acknowledge some caveats. There are some potential issues with the approach I'm about to lay down for you guys, because I do think that there are some hurdles for many people in a rehab setting to overcome. One of them we mentioned earlier is the uh, insurance model that we currently have. How can I possibly get all this stuff done and integrated in 20 visits? And, and that is a, definitely an issue. And I believe one of the solutions to that is creating you know, a network of of professionals, whether it be, you know, a, a PT, then discussing these concepts with a um, strength and conditioning coach or the sport coach in order to kind of bridge that gap and pass that athlete along successfully and communicate what the long-term outcomes for that athlete should be. Another potential hurdle is going to be the protocols and respecting the fact that this person did have a graft. We can introduce all of these concepts right away and then, right, we have an ACL retear, and that's not what we want at all. And as a physical therapist, putting myself in their shoes, they need to make sure that that relationship with the surgeon and with the athlete is is really intact, and that there is a protocol to be followed. So I'm not saying just throw them to the wolves. There are ways to scale down the representativeness, which is basically the game like uh, feel of, of the tasks, and scale it up when we need to. So as that athlete progresses in their timeline of rehab that knob, if you will, if you can imagine, if you can imagine that will be turned up higher and higher towards six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten 10, being the actual sport as representative as possible as they are further along in their rehab earlier, it's going to be turned down one, two, three, four. That way we can respect the fact that there was a major surgery that took place. I think another thing that has to be understood too, is that there are certain constraints that you can impose within these athletes and the problem that they face. We're not saying expose them to everything and, and don't um, coach them at all. It's just guide them in a safe and effective way. And another one is going to be space considerations. Now we're blessed over at Ignite. We have a 5,000 square foot gym and we're able to you know have 40 yards of turf and 10 yards width of, of the turf, including some weight room space. So we're able to do a lot that many people couldn't do in a typical rehab setting. That being said, I do think there are some ways to overcome some space issues. There are ways to implement small slices of the game, of their sport, of movement problems that do not take up too much space and are doable in, in a setting where space is at a premium. The next thing that I think that we need to discuss in order to move forward is going to be what is emphasized during these return to play protocols? So almost shifting or changing of the lens, if you will, over what our aims are when we're actually taking these athletes through these protocols. So typically in most return to play programs, the goals or the outcomes that we desire, just to name a few, are going to be physical KPIs in nature, right? So they're going to be basically what that athlete can do from a physical 
from a physical standpoint. So a lot, some of these that, that we see that are common are going to be strength. How much weight the athlete can move? Is it going to progress in a linear way? Limb symmetry, which is important, right? Can I, can I produce a similar distance on a single leg broad jump from my injured side to my non-injured side? Repeatability. Can I report, uh, produce the same exact technique over and over again? Quad circumference, right? Those are just a few examples of some physical KPIs. Now, those are very important and early on in the rehab process are 100% necessary and should be emphasized. You don't get those done, then we cannot move to this next phase that I'm going to talk about. I feel like the shift needs to be towards not just the physical KPIs, but perceptual KPIs, perceptual motor KPIs, if you will. So what am I seeing? What is my brain experiencing? What am I experiencing as, a, as an athlete? And then what shows up as I move? So some of these might be abundance or degeneracy. Basically, the number of ways that I can solve a problem. Do I have multiple solutions to this ever-changing problem that is sport? Adaptability. Am I adaptable? Is my athlete adaptable? When you put them in a different situation, do they shut down or do they adjust? Because that is what's going to happen in sport. It's not static. The situations will change all the time, constantly during the athlete's game or sport that they do. The next one is going to be ownership. We have to remember that ownership on autonomy are very important because we will not be there on the field or the court with our athletes. So we have to allow them to express who they are. We have to take the kids gl kid gloves off, if you will, and allow them ownership over the rehab process, allow them some autonomy and some choice. And another one is going to be creativity. Does my athlete have solutions to novel problems that, an that they will face in their sport? A lot of the times injuries occur when something out of the ordinary happens, right? A situation where maybe an athlete is in a, a really kind of compromised position where their leg is one way and their arms are another, or they see something they haven't seen before. That's what will happen a lot of the times in sport and our athletes aren't prepared for that. So we want to make sure that they are actually prepared for that and that when they do face that, they can create another solution to that problem. Speaking of problems, a lot of the return to play Agility activities, drills, if you will, do not represent the problems that the athletes will face in their sport. We don't even really come close, if we're being honest. So some of these drills that you commonly see, let's just say a 5-10-5 or pro agility. Or another one, for example, could be a T-test. So for those that don't know, a T-test is where you sprint to a center cone, shuffle, touch the other cone, shuffle to the right, touch the other one, and then backpedal. And then a pro agility we probably all seen, so I'm assuming we all know what that is. The problem with those drills is that they're not alive. Those cones aren't moving. There is no variability presented in those drills. The athletes aren't really solving anything. They're going to get good at cutting at cones. They're going to get good at mastering this, this drill that doesn't really have any, anything in common with what they're going to face in sport. We'll take an example here. Look at a 5-10-5 versus an actual agility situation in football where I have to actually make a lateral cut, right? That's what a 5-10-5 is working on. If I have to actually make a lateral cut, that person is going to dictate when I decide to cut, not a cone that is, that is uh, sitting there and not moving whatsoever. It's kind of like the old Bruce Lee adage, 
boards don't hit back. So how can we integrate some of these things into a return to play program? I'm going to go ahead and lay out a few concepts that can be introduced into return to play programs. This list isn't exhaustive by any means, but I do feel like it's a great place to start. If you want to learn a little bit more, the guys over at Emergence held a sport movement skill conference and I presented on this very topic. The slides and the videos are available for purchase, so you can go ahead and see that along with some other brilliant presenters who, who know this field way better than I do. So that being said, here are a couple ways that we can introduce some of these ecological concepts and create, in my opinion, a more robust, well-rounded athlete who is more resilient to injury. So one of the things that we can do is introduce variability early. So oftentimes, variability is not really recognized at all in return to play programs. It's something that is almost ignored or, or shunned. The reality is sports movement Sport movement is not sterile. It is ever-changing, and variability is a key to becoming a great athlete. Having multiple solutions to the same problem, as I mentioned earlier, is very, very key. We take, typically in strength and conditioning, not just physical therapy, but we typically take a rep with repetition. So basically repeating the same thing over and over again. In reality, we want to have a repetition without repetition, and that means repeating a problem with slight changes. So one example, one practical example that we could do to introduce variability, if we take the exercise of a split squat. So we're going to take a split squat. Let's just say we're doing a standard split squat with the weights held down by your side. One way you could add variability to that is simply have the athlete change the back foot position each rep, right? So you could do it either rep to rep or set to set. You could also have them go down at different tempos. Maybe one time I go down at one second, and then the next time I go down at six seconds. So you could tell the athlete here, choose between two and six seconds, or if you want to maybe dictate, you could say reps three through five, uh, go uh, two seconds on the way down, reps six through 10, go five seconds on the way down. So that's a way of introducing variability. Another way of introducing variability, obviously this part is going to be contingent on where they're at in the rehab and the protocols. For example, if they don't allow them to do transverse plane movements, this might affect this, but you could allow them to change the angle each time. So let's just take the activity of a lunge. Well, they can do transverse plane lunge one time, frontal plane lunge, sagittal plane lunge. You allow them to choose, which then brings me to my next point, ownership and autonomy. We have to remember, we will not be on the field or court with our athletes. They're going to be all by themselves and they have to know that the solutions and the strength resides in them, not within us. We don't have all the answers. We want to empower them to have the answers. That may mean as simple as asking the athlete, hey, how do you want to change this up? Or would you like a, would you want to do a hex bar or a goblet squat? Any number of things to allow the athlete autonomy and ownership to choose what they do. You could also do that in a number of ways within the warm-up, allowing them to go through different flows, different crawl patterns, basically allowing them to choose how they want to move. That is really, really key. And then the third one I'm going to mention today is going to be allowing our athletes to adapt to relevant information. So what does that mean? I mentioned earlier some of these drills that we see our athletes are adapting to information that isn't relevant, a cone height, the placement of the cone, you know, does not really transfer well 
to what I'm going to see in a sport. So here's one simple change that you could do. Let's take the the application of wanting to work on deceleration mechanics. Okay, so oftentimes you'll see this. Coaches will set cones at different depths, and the athlete will then jog and then decelerate at that cone, jog, decelerate at that cone in a linear fashion. Simple fix that you could do: pair your athlete up with another athlete. Right, the best tool you can ever have in a gym, in my opinion, or in a field, is going to be another body. Have them stand side by side. Have one athlete lead, one athlete follow. Right, the athlete that's leading is going to jog in and then stop. That athlete will then stop. The opposing athlete will stop as they do. So, kind of offense defense. They can continue down that way. The athlete on offense can jog and stop. The athlete on quote unquote defense can stop when they do. You can do this in a forward fashion, a lateral fashion, any number of mirroring activities that you can do that will allow the athlete to actually adapt to more relevant information than just throwing cones or speed ladders on the floor. And along that same lines, another thing that we want to do is introduce different factors that the athlete might be experiencing. So we talked about, you know, what the athlete is seeing and the information they're adapting to. What about fatigue and pressure and, and anxiety? The reality is people change their movements under fatigue, pressure, and anxiety. And we have to introduce that in little small doses in order for them to become adapted to it. Simple thing might be keeping score, right? Or having somebody watch them. Another one, another one might be to just do the movement part of the session or of, of the deceleration mechanics after they've been fatigued a little bit, maybe through some blood flow restriction or on the bike, because that the reality is they're going to see that. And a lot of the times injuries do occur when athletes are fatigued. So guys, those are just some of my thoughts. Obviously, this isn't an exhaustive list, as I mentioned earlier. But to me, you know, at the end of the day, why we're having this discussion or why this is important to me is because we want our athletes to have the best possible outcomes. We don't want them to experience a career that is littered with injuries similar to what I experienced. We want to make sure we set them, with, set them up with the tools to be successful as possible and ultimately not really need us, right? That is the goal. And I'd be happy to discuss these concepts with anybody who is interested, whether reaching out to me via email or on social media at the Coach Hav. Also, I will link to those resources, you know, Rob Gray, the guys over at Emergence, and then the recordings of the Sports Movement Skill Conference that happened this year. As always, guys, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Hey guys, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. If you like what you heard, share the episode with a friend, share it on social media, or even better, write us a review. Until next time, we'll see you on the Athlete Blueprint Podcast. Take care.